Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East European Studies. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lay, and today I'll be talking with Stephen Siegel about his book, Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, published by the University of Chicago Press. Hello, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really happy to have you finally. It's been a long time since your book arrived in the mail, but I was glad to get back to it finally. So um, I guess we'll start with some basic questions because, you know, this is your first book and I know you've had some uh, out since, but um, how did you get interested in the idea of, of taking maps and, and talking about them in special respect to Eastern Europe? I, I think I could explain it in two different ways, one which is personal and and the other more intellectual. One of the first ways I got interested um, in the topic of cartography, and especially critical cartography, was when I was a graduate student at Brown uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And there were a couple of books that inspired me and which I read very carefully. In fact, even before I was a grad student, um, I could mention uh, Tung Chai Winnichuckle's Siam Map, which is a wonderful history of Thailand and, and Thai historiography using maps and using cartography. There is also Timothy Snyder's The Reconstruction of Nations, which came out in 2003, and actually which I read while I was a student with Tim um, studying Ukrainian at at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, to my great fortune. Um, And then there was Larry Wolf's Inventing Eastern Europe, of course, which um, was such a wonderful research project um, dealing with the Enlightenment and the map of civilization and uh, how cartography was not just simply a rational thing, but very much embedded in society and culture. So it was through reading, and I think that was an intellectual interest, which very much drew me deeper into East European history and especially into Poland and Ukraine and Russia. Uh, And then when I was an undergraduate back in my hometown in Buffalo, New York, back in the day in the mid-90s, one of my very first jobs was working as an assistant to a wonderful map librarian who's who's now a curator at the Buffalo Historical Society um, named Cynthia Van Ness. And uh, her job, um, in addition to being a historian of art and architecture in the city, Um, was to hold, uh, maintain as a map librarian, a grand collection, in fact, one of the largest collections of uh, USGS maps and other maps on the East Coast in the United States. And so uh, I would look at many of these maps and 
talk to a lot of people who are coming in and doing family history and genealogical research and trying to make sense of vanished, erased towns, villages, um, counties, places that had changed names between um, German and Ruthenian or Polish and Ukrainian or Russian and other languages. And um, that really drew me into uh, trying to write a book of this nature, which was um, very daunting at first because it involved Russian military cartography. Um, it involved getting into Russian libraries and archives, which at that time um, were, in fact, more open than they are now. Um, and I thought I would write a book about the intersection of, of history using maps between former Poland-Lithuania plus the Habsburg and Russian empires and also with a focus on Ukraine. So that's, I think, the germination of the project um, somewhere around the mid-90s to the early 2000s. Oh, it was it was quite an ambitious project, and uh, it's come off quite well, in my opinion. Um, what you know? Could you talk about a map? One map that inspired your research, and perhaps discuss what issues it raised for you. Do you know? Describe the map as well. Sure. Um, well, uh, as someone who loves to read novels, um, I. Um, have as one of my very favorite novels, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I had never really thought about Conrad the Pole or Conrad the Deletion um, tracing back to the Korzhenyovsky family and tracing back to um, the history of the Shlachta in, in early modern Poland and, and even before. Well, one of the maps that I stumbled upon in my research was a one that was made by his aunt, uh, whose name was Maria Regina Nawensh Korzhenyovska. Um, and in fact, Conrad, in, in his writings, and, and even in Heart of Darkness, talks about how he, as a young boy, would look at maps, gaze at maps, dream of exploration and seafaring and going to unknown territories, including um, on the African continent. And as it turned out, one of the maps that he looked at when he was a boy um, on the family estate in, in Berdichev or Berdichov um, was a map that was um, made by Kozhenyovska. Um, and she was um, turned out this map really between um, the Polish insurrections of, of 1830-31 and 1863-64 as a way of, of preserving the memory of the old Jezpospolita and as a way to inspire other historians, um, one of which I discuss in the book, Joachim Lelevel, who became a great collector um, abroad as a former professor uh, at, at the University of Vilnius. Anyway, um, the whole history of the Korzhenyovsky family can be traced through the 19th century and, and through a map which um, Korzhenyovsky found to be very inspiring because it showed um, not only the territories of the Commonwealth, but 
um, the heraldic seals, the number of libraries which had existed in former Poland, Lithuania, the levels of literacy was also something that she wanted to pay attention to. And as I thought about this map, I thought it must have been extraordinarily hard to produce such maps without a state. <laughs> That is, once states were destroyed as um, or partitioned in the case of um, the Commonwealth in 1772, 93, and 95. And so one of the guiding questions of the book is the relationship between people who produce maps and disseminate maps and those who oversee such maps um, through school commissions, through censorship, through census taking, and through all of the things that, that we connect with modernity or maybe governmentality would be a better word um, to describe the process of seeing like a state. And so this was one of the maps of old Poland or old, old Poland, Lithuania, which um, I analyze and discuss in fact. Uh, you know, the, the whole Korsianowska thing is really interesting, I think. You know, just that whole family and where they, they fit in, and the fact that, you know, that uh, Conrad ends up being, you know, whatever you may criticize him for as far, you know, from a um, an Orientalist perspective, nonetheless, had, had insights sure. that came from from the experience of being dominated by another country. Um, you know, when uh, you, you also, you know, and you've mentioned it here, but it just does seem this book is as much about the cartographers as it is the maps. Um, and, you know, apart from that, could you perhaps give us a brief outline at this point of how the map making, you know, how maps developed in Eastern Europe? I mean, it seems to have happened a bit more slowly than in Western Europe. Maybe that's not quite accurate, but um, could you talk about that? Sure. I think one of the keys to the story is borrowing. And I think borrowing is a euphemism for plagiarism in many <laughs> cases because there was so much copying going on. Um, indeed, this was print culture, the kind of which is described by Benedict Anderson in Imagined Communities as part of the development of, of nations, if you want to call them modern that's fine. Um, but the print culture really became highly developed by the end of the 19th century through a lot of technical innovations. So, for example, um, there is, of course, um, the invention of photography and, and the use of photography, which becomes essential in the 20th century to um, aerial mapping and things like that. But there are a lot of things that, that um, struck me as really important in studying this particular kind of print culture. So, for example, the development of color lithography or chromolithography, which really takes off in the 1930s and 1940s. And I think by the time we get to that other seminal year in the 19th century, when the revolutions of, of 1848-49 break out, in Central Europe, there is a real flood of maps. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a proliferation of the use of the word cartography itself. And 
the debates that take place after the revolutions in empires and among specialists, especially uh, multilingual specialists of the German orientation, are in how to map nationalities, how to map minorities, and how to figure out on the basis of mother tongue, spoken language, confession, uh, how to attach labels to entire groups of populations. becomes a real problem of, of legibility and a real problem of, of representation um, of groups which often are feared by the states, um, which are empires because they are potentially insurrectionary. Or uh, in the case of Ruthenians, Ukrainians, Little Russians across borders in the lands of the Habsburg Empire and the Russian Empire, they potentially pose a threat. And so therefore, one needs to send out the men, send out the explorers, send out the anthropologists, ethnologists, people working for various geographical societies in order to make sense of, of um, these populations. So uh, that was, I think, one way of, of making sense of it, first through technical innovations, and then secondly, through the, the very rationality of, of, of using maps as part of surveys and as part of the newly developing disciplines of things like geography and ethnography and linguistics. Now, that's quite a, a change from the way the maps that you first start talking about in the book with Peter the Great, uh, you know, their concerns, correct? That's right. And I think it's really important to go back into um, Russian history even before Peter the Great. Um, Peter, with all of his travels abroad and with all of his, um, I think, obsessions, if, if one could call them that, about how to expand the territory and how to hold the territory together, together also drew from old Muscovite traditions, uh, which I discuss a little bit in the book and, and from which I draw great inspiration from, among other people, Marshall Poe. I hope he's listening. Um, and Val Kivelson, um, Valerie Kivelson's book on, on 17th century mapping uh, by Muscovites of, of a Christian realm, of a resolutely orthodox realm, um, I think was extremely important in the Russian case and in how it encoded frontiers, how it expanded, how it applied notions of boundlessness to its borderlands. And this, I think, was extremely relevant in the annexations uh, of territories which were once part of, say, Catholic and Baroque uh, Poland and, and Ukraine. But there was a major change that happened under, under Peter because uh, Peter wanted to oversee uh, the geographers and cartographers within the empire, so geographers like Vasily Tatishchev. Uh, Peter certainly wanted to use um, maps for the sake of expansion to build defense lines during the Great Northern War or fortified towns. Um, and so the project of, of Peter uh, in the 18th century was very much extended by his successors, above all, by Catherine the Great. You know, and, and then, of course, within the century, and you've already uh, 
touched on this a little bit, the partition of, of Poland happens, and that does seem to be the pivotal part of your story. Oh, what cartographic needs and concerns did the partitions bring about? Not so much in the uh, for the Pol- Polish elite, which you've talked about uh, with respect to Korzynowska, but uh, for the partitioning powers. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I divided my book into 10 different chapters, and I made it a point uh, to separate out early 19th century Russian imperial cartography and those purposes from early 19th century Polish national cartography, as I call it, and those purposes. Um, I make it a point in the book also to separate categories of thematic maps a little bit. Um, When you go to Russian archives and libraries, one of the effects of of Soviet history and doing Soviet history was a very rigid system of classification of maps by intellectual discipline and, and sometimes into things that are very, very specialized. Like, for example, hydrography or hydrology was very specialized. Geology was very specialized. Maps of mining and metallurgy were extremely specialized. And so when I separate out the Russian and and Polish um, angles and and try and introduce the perspective of of empire with the partitions, um, it becomes extremely important, I think, to use three categories. Those three categories of mapping would be military cartography, historical hyphen pedagogical cartography, um, and then ethnography. which in some ways invites the whole uh, obsession with censuses and statistics that happens around mid-century. The easiest way to explain imperial interests at first um, in the partitions is through military mapping and and military cartography. Um, The insurrectionists, of course, uh, who were part of the Kostushko uprising and later on who became part of... um, the November and January uprisings, sought to preserve reconnaissance maps. And in fact, many of them um, held those kinds of maps uh, in their estates or at their estate libraries. And the reason for that was because of the St. Petersburg Convention signed by the empires in 1791, which um, actually wanted to remove not just the territory of Poland or Poland-Lithuania, but the memory and the historical memory of Poland and Poland-Lithuania. So this leads to the second part, which is historical and pedagogical cartography. The borrowers, that is the plagiarists that I described um, in some of the early chapters, including chapter three, took... Um, as many maps as they could into newly formed libraries, like, for instance, the Publicka Library in, in St. Petersburg under um, the period of Catherine the Great and after Catherine the Great. And a lot of the Russians um, who became travel writers and historians, like, for example, Nicholas Karamzin, who was the official court cartographer, borrowed... Um, in a very eclectic manner from French and German sources, 
and they collected many of the maps which had been made in the late period of Poland-Lithuania in order to kind of condense history into, into territory. And eventually under the czars, if I can use the Russian case, um, Tsar Alexander I and, and especially Tsar Nicholas II um, became very interested in um, using maps for pedagogical purposes, that is, in order to instruct subjects about the nature of, of their realm. And um, if I can just add one one aspect to this from the Habsburg angle, um, the Habsburg military had been destroyed um, by really by Napoleon. And all of the commercial firms which had existed in the late 18th century, mostly out of Vienna for producing maps, had to be reorganized during the course of the Napoleonic Wars. It was almost impossible for these commercial firms to keep up with the changes of territory. Um, the old adage is that once a map is produced, it's already extinct or mm -hmm. it's already defunct. The moment the map is produced, the, ter the territories have already changed. And in the 19th century, especially in the early decades, 18-teens, 1820s, with the Congress of Vienna and its settlements, this sets in motion, um, especially in the empires, a real need for keeping up with those territorial changes. And both the Habsburg empires and the Russian czars, um, there are many differences between the empires, of course, but they both have in common the notion of, of um, broadcasting, representing territorial unity. That is, to make sure, um, especially in the years after the treaty was signed and there were potential insurrectionists lurking in empires, that their subjects and eventually their citizens um, learned through school books and learned through the emerging disciplines of geography um, that their empire was a complete whole, that it was, um, in the words of, of Benedict Anderson, a totalizing classificatory grid, um, which is a wordy way of, of saying that one can have a lot of patriotism for landscapes that are very disparate, but are represented in, in a single and unified document. So that's how empires kind of approach this. Um, they also, uh, through their military and topographical services, because the lands were so vast, especially in the Russian Empire, um, had to create systems of monitoring their own cartographers, people who were engineers, people who were hydrographers, who were experts, usually of an aristocratic bent, but not always, um, and who were producing maps um, via the geographical societies and, and for the purpose of um, scrutiny by the czars and the czars and emperors. So um, I think that's the early part of this to explain um, some of the perspectives of, of the empire and, and how the empires instrumentalized the maps and used maps uh, in a way to survey their entire world. And then you talked about the pedagogical factors you know, the, particularly in Russia. You say Peter's already interested in this idea of the pedagogical tools, but it, it certainly changes in the course of the 19th century. That was certainly what I got from the book. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And if I, if I could flash forward on that a little bit, um, the most important 19th century commercial firm that's founded in Russia uh, is founded in the spirit of the great reforms and in the spirit of Alexander II. And this takes place in 1859. It's a cartographic firm, which is called Ilyin Polterotsky and Company. And uh, I think it's extremely important um, to know a little bit about the men and the biographies of the men who founded this. One was um, an aristocratic army captain um, of the Ilyin family. He was born in 1832. Um, another one, in fact, his friend and closest colleague was a lieutenant colonel in, um, in the Imperial Army, whose name was Vladimir Polterotsky. Uh, he was part of the army's general staff. And um, this firm became an absolutely impressive, um, amazing firm in just the amount of things that it produced between 1859 and, and the revolution. In fact, it lasted all the way up until 1915. Um, just to mention one point, um, I think this kind of commercial firm would have been impossible under the third section of, of Nicholas I in, in the era of preemptive censorship. But these men who had um, experience, in fact, their families had experience in the military and going all the way back to Napoleonic Wars, um, wanted to feature the latest in cartographic equipment, things like color cartography, wanted to be involved in the building of a civil society through um, through the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of National Enlightenment, as, as it's sometimes called. And so they began producing maps that were not just for military purposes or the internal purposes of the, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, but also for the Russian um, public, for the schools, atlases for schools, um, in order to educate people in the Russian language. Now, the problem with this was that they were very Russo-centric. Um, they did not, the Ilyin or Polterotskys or the Ilyin family, uh, believe at all in anything um, called Ukraine. Um, they referred official maps to Malorus, Malorus. They did not see the Cossack Hetmanate, for example, as, as anything historical in, in terms of um, statehood. And so uh, when they began producing, producing maps for ministries, especially after that major turning point of 1863-64, um, they fused both Russian imperialism and Russian nationalism together. And so the maps that once were so militarily oriented in the beginning part of the century became much more oriented towards society and the building of a Russian imperial national civil society uh, through that very important firm. Um, they had government contracts uh, and, and eventually uh, they were liquidated by the Bolsheviks. Uh, during the revolution, the Bolsheviks, Lenin um, included, of course, uh, saw this firm which had supported the empire and supported the czars as potentially dangerous uh, and, and in need of um, collectivization, I guess, or simply liquidation of its, its resources and liquidation. Now, going back to the other side of this at this point, uh, and this, one of the things, you know, particularly when you're talking about Polish uh, cartography, 
is that they're you know they have this national mission um and to what extent are they at the vanguard and to what extent uh is their work a reflection of society more general and of course here i'm speaking you've mentioned the level another figure in your uh book is vincenti paul um, yes so uh perhaps you can talk about that what was their idea of poland Sure, I, I think that's a great question, and, and you know, as far as the Polish question is concerned, um, this is this is an elephant in the room um, throughout the book, and, and I, I address it um, through human beings. It is not through ideologies that constructed maps, but through individuals. Um, I think there are three important Polish geographers and cartographers as major figures in the book, and, and several others, but I'll, I'll just mention who they are and explain why they're important. Um, the first figure is, is Lelavel, the historian Joachim Lelavel. And he had an incredible collection of maps. Uh, it was one of his secret passions. In fact, um, as a historian, uh, as someone who taught in the 1820s in Vilna, Vilnius, um, he wanted to use historical source criticism um, in that German kind of way, especially, as an inspiration for using uh, Polish maps, for scrutinizing old ancient medieval maps, and for developing Polish historical maps, Polish historical atlases, which, which he did. Um, and in the 1830s and in 1840s, a lot of these maps were produced in the Wielka Emigracja. They were produced abroad. Um, they were um, inspired by uh, funds sometimes from, from people like Adam Yoshi-Karkarisky. But um, Lelavel saw maps as a way, of course, to preserve the Polish mission in the age of Romantic nationalism, in the age of Mitzkevich and Stavats. But I think his understanding of, of how maps were used was very much challenged uh, by Vincenti Pol and by the third person I'll, I'll get to, whose name is Elgenius Wolver. Just to give a couple of, of um, points about Pol and, and I think why he why he's so important um, for studying maps. Um, Pol was a poet, but he was also um, very... I think much, very much like an, a Renaissance man in his interests. I call him a Galician drifter who goes native. Um, he was a career shifter. Um, he was both poet and scientist in, in that kind of Goethe way. Um, he became interested in geography and the natural sciences after reading the German greats of the age, especially Alexander von Humboldt and, and Karl Ritter. Ritter, who became the first professor of geography, uh, really in the world, um, in the modern sense, in 1828. Pohl was product of an age of uh, geographical societies, um, the first of which uh, were started in um, Paris in 1821, Berlin 1828, under Ritter, um, London with the Royal Geographical Society in 1830, and, and ultimately with the Geographical Society in St. Petersburg in 1845. 
Um, Paul wanted uh, really um, to find a career which would fulfill all of his interests. Um, he was a teacher and a court clerk for a time, but very, very unsatisfied with provincial jobs. And I think in his encounter with both the work and celebrity of people like Kimball and Ritter, um, this was something he used to write uh, influential texts on both Polish geography uh, and ethnography in the 1840s. Um, one thing about Paul, he was, and that's often forgotten about him because he's usually, uh, his works are, are usually remembered in a kind of poetic sense. Uh, he became the first ever chair of the Department of Geography at Yagelonian University in Krakow uh, in 1849 and tried his hand very briefly at maps. It turned out he was a poor <laughs> drawer. He couldn't draw maps very well. Um, and, you know, after that, he really turned to writing those kind of classics which appeared in, um, in Polish Galicia, like Mohort, um, those inspirations for Sienkiewicz's historical novels. Mohort was a, Mohort, I should say, was a book that was read in, in very many Galician schools. Uh, from the 1860s onward. Um, but I think in geography, if we see, if we see Paul as a geographer, his most important work is, is the Historiczny Obszar Polski, which was first um, written in 1867, the Historical Space of Poland. And in it, he drew um, Polish hydrological space, that is, between rivers, uh, he drew the space between the Black Sea and the Baltic, or the Morja do Morja. It's something that certainly comes from Paul's works. And so um, he created a, a, a kind of school uh, unto himself using natural arguments, using natural justifications for Polish frontiers, which of course would be used by the Polish right. Uh, through the 19th and late 19th and early 20th century. He's very much a transitional figure in that sense between um, Lelevel uh, and Romer. Um, do you want me to discuss Romer a little bit or, or shall, shall we move on to something else? But Romer comes um, really in, into in, have impact with late partners. I want to talk, I definitely want to talk about Romer, but I would like to talk a bit more about Paul because he fascinates sure. me. Sure. Um, and I'm wondering, I would ask you a, a, a question from a different angle. How Galician is Paul and how Polish is Paul? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I wish I could ask the interrogator. <laughs> um, if we look at him biographically, let's take it there. He was a creature of the borderlands. Um, in fact, his mother came from a family of French merchants. Um, his father was a, a German lawyer, state owner. He had been habilitated, I should say, habilitated, habilitated as 20th century Oxford's in, in 1818. Um, his father was loyal. I think he could be described as a loyalist. Um, he died in 1823. He worked as a counselor in Lvov as well as uh, in Stanisławo, which is now Ivano Frankiv's. Um, and, you know, Paul wanted, I think this is the importance of, of understanding biography, uh, he, he thought, at least initially as a young man, that he could follow his father's mission in, in Hopsburg's sense. 
um, maybe become a lawyer, um, especially because the family was experiencing, as, as many did who were Habsburg nobles, um, financial difficulties. Um, and I guess my way of describing Pol as Polish is very similar to my way of describing Lelevel and Romer. And this is a great irony because um, Lelevel um, wrote, in fact, that he had not a drop of Polish blood. Uh, one could say the same about um, Pol. Um, for him, Poland and mapping Poland and becoming a poet and naturalist and geographer was very much a choice. Uh, or you could describe it as an elective affinity um, in how he came to want to study the historical nature of Poland and map the historical nature of Poland in poetry and in prose and in maps and in, in his um, I find it really interesting to ask the question if Pol as a drifter in Galicia um, between empires um, holding a, a, a bit of nostalgia as, as of course many did for Poland would what would have happened if he had been appointed as a court historian? Or what would have happened if he had been appointed, let's say, um, to the position of a chair of geography, as the Germans had that luxury uh, in the 1820s and 1830s? And this just did not happen. Uh, the Department of Geography had been closed. Um, he, in effect, had lost his job. And um, it took many years, in fact, until 1877 for a geography department at, uh, at that time, I think, the most important university in Poland, Jagiellonian and Krakow, to be reestablished. And that was five years after uh, Pol had died in 1872. So, you know, in that sense, it's not until the disciplines are granted sanction, both in a social sense and in a political sense, that one can go forward and, and begin to have state sponsorship and, and produce um, things that are territorially imagined, but also things that are territorial, territorial, territorially real estates, um, like that entity called Pol. So, you know, he's a poet turned geographer as Pol. He's a drifter. Uh, he has varying success as a professional, and ultimately he carves out his career um, in a multidisciplinary way, to use that, that kind of academic jargony <laughs> word, uh, he, he is an interdisciplinarian. Um, he's a gentleman scholar, uh, and, you know, he is ultimately insisting on a very Polonocentric map of the borderlands in the territory or out of a territory. After, he's, after the chair is closed down, does he continue to draft maps or, I mean, or at least do geographical uh, work? I found some maps that he had, uh, he had drawn um, there. You can find them at, at Jagiellonian uh, in Krakow. In fact, there may even be uh, some at the Osolineum. Um, so yes, you know, he uh, absolutely drew maps, but he would be described today as a cultural geographer, I think. Uh, because he used narrative um, in the way that Mitskevich used narrative um, to imagine a, a lost fatherland. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think because Paul had such significant influence on, on generations of, of Galician school children or Polish speaking Galician children, um, there are some benefits and, and there are some disadvantages to the kind of influence that, that he ultimately had. He glorified the idea of Cressy or, or borderlands as historically part of Poland. He glorified the borderlands as an assimilative frontier space um, for Polish civilization and for Polish civilization as a defense of 19th century Europe. But, of course, he left out um, certain groups or marginalized certain groups, including Ukrainians, in, in this kind of um, geographical, cultural geographical And this was something that was very much picked up upon um, in the 1880s, both by Polish circles of geographers and eventually by Ukrainians like um, Stefan Rudnitsky, uh, whom I write about, because um, Rudnitsky, as a Ukrainian, the most important Ukrainian geographer, really, um, in its history, um, picks up upon um, those kinds of cultural tropes and those kinds of maps which are produced by, um, by Poland and by his successor. So, I mean, I think the quick answer would be, you know, yes, Pol is Polish, yes, Pol is a geographer, uh, but mainly a cultural geographer, not someone who is actually drawing and producing maps that are the kind of which... Uh, commercial firms are, are well let's move on uh you've mentioned uh rudnitsky who of course is going to be interfacing with romer yes uh, and let's bring this up to you know the maps that lead up to world war one and then the effects of those maps uh, in the aftermath of world war one yeah i i think the story of World War I, um, in my book at least, doesn't begin in a very typical way. Um, there are several ways that it begins. One is uh, some, a trend that I would call the bureaucratization of space, or maybe even simply the rationalization of, of space. Um, the rationalization of, of space takes place, of course, through the military, uh, in empires, it takes place through administrative cartography. Um, it takes place through expositions, like, for example, um, the 1829 geographical exposition um, in, uh, in St. Petersburg, which draws uh, its source from other expositions, like going all the way back to 1851 in London, at least. Um, but the rationalization of, of space really, I think, um, comes to its high modern culmination with the all-Russian census of 1872. And I was always very taken by um, scholars like uh, David Darrow or uh, Morgan Labbe or Juliette Cadio uh, or Francine Hirsch um, or um, at, at Harvard as well. Uh, I, I think... The people who began to look at census statistics as, as not innocent, as having um, embedded politics and, and political um, purposes and agendas and tasks within them. Um, so there is a trend which I call in my book ethnoschematization. Um, ethnoschematization as, as part of the rationalization and bureaucratization of space principally means reduction. 
the reduction of three-dimensional breathing human beings to one-dimensional black and white on the map or colors according to key, according to scale on the map. Ethnoschematization means um, mainly the treatment of narodnosti, nacionalite, narodovoshti, nationalities, nacionaliteten, um, who ultimately are defined as groupist collectives. Rogers Brubaker, in his work, writes a lot about groupism since 1848. And I, I take this point as well. Ethnoschematization, as it appears um, in censuses, I see as one of the causes of World War I, because ethnoschematization classifies groups in a taxonomic way that governments um, were, were really obsessed with. Um, ethnoschematization um, provides an invitation for mass politics, for ethnic mapping, for ethnocentric ways of portraying the universe as a Ruski Mir or as a Slavyansky Mir or as a Globus Ukraini, however, a Globus Ukraini, however you might describe it. Um, this process of ethnoschematization um, is very much a modern process, but it, it's a process which involves um, the emergence of geographers and cartographers as professionals. And so the geographers like Stefan Rudnitsky, um, who come of age in the 1890s, study abroad in Vienna, they study abroad in Germany. Um, Romer himself is um, German-speaking. He comes from a, a German-speaking family, a family, in fact, of Polish nobility that can trace its origins all the way back, Saxon nobility, all the way back to the 14th century. These geographers come of age in order to rationalize and classify territory to put peoples as groups, as nationalities into maps. And um, I think what happens in the borderlands is um, those of us who are modern political historians often take for granted when we study multi-ethnic empires that biographically, if one scratches the surface a little bit more as we did with Poland Melevo, there isn't, let's say, a 100% pure authentic bloodline pole, or there isn't the 100% bloodline Ukrainian. These categories of race, of race and ethnicity are, are largely absurd, or at least they're constructed, um, and they're constructed as parts of illiberal projects in an age of modern nationalism and imperialism. So when, when our men, toward the end of the century, um, begin drawing maps, as Rydnitsky did, in order to gather in the Ukrainians, little Russians, Ruthanians, and so forth, Rydnitsky um, draws from 19th century cartographers for, for such a project. And, and that becomes one of the bases uh, for modern nationalism. And modern nationalism is one of the major causes of World War I. So it, it's a very roundabout way of going at this, but certainly um, the instrumentalized map, maps used uh, by militaries, by paramilitaries, um, is, is one way of drawing a line that says, this is my land, not their land. This is my land, not your land. Um, and here we're going to have a line and our armies are going to fight. And at the end, of course, with the Wilsonian revolution, as I like to see it, of uh, geographically, 
uh, maps become even more important than before. Uh, could you talk about how that worked? And in particular, you know, what is, let's draw a little comparison between how it works for Poland, uh, which, of course, manages to get their state, and uh, the Ukrainians, who are the, probably the best example of, of a country or, or rather a group uh, national idea, let's put it that way, uh, that doesn't manage to get its way uh, at the end of World War I. Yeah, I, I think um, if you look back from the Paris Peace Conference, so the Paris Peace Conference took place from January to June 1919. Uh, the most famous centerpiece of the Paris Peace Conference is the Treaty of Versailles. But the Paris Peace Conference um, left unresolved a lot of issues in the East, Um one can say that a Ukrainian revolution was still going on with anywhere between nine and 12 changes of government uh, between 1917 and 1921. If you focus um, on Kiev, of course, uh, then the Paris Peace Conference really doesn't resolve much of anything. Um, the members who came, for example, from the United States as part of Woodrow Wilson's inquiry um, to resolve the borders and, and border disputes tended to favor Poland. Uh, I talk um, in Mapping Europe's Borderlands and in my new book called Mapmen about the relationship that um, the chief territorial specialist and the future president of Johns Hopkins, a man by the name of Isaiah Bowman, had with Romer. Um, Romer would go... Uh, knock on Bowman's door um, while the Ukrainian-Polish war was going on or the Polish-Ukrainian war was going on between November 1918 and, and July 1919, Romer would knock on the door with maps to give to Bowman. And Romer, Elginius Romer, um, did not believe that the Ukrainians had a state and deserved independence. In fact, he, he thought of Ukrainians as off of the map of civilization. Uh, and there are many reasons for that which we can discuss. But um, there were several levels of this. One was the level of what was happening in Paris um, with uh, the U.S. Committee to Negotiate Peace. Um, it was a negotiation which involved the victors, of course. There was a, a commission which was put together, uh, which did not invite Ukrainians or Poles for that matter, um, to set up the borderlands or, or to draw what ultimately became the, the core zone line. Um, there were revolutions which were happening, multiple revolutions, um, including, of course, the Russian revolutions of February and, and October 1917, which were carried out as civil war. Uh, and as, as a way to um, bring communism into Europe. And, you know, then there was the other level, the smaller level, perhaps, uh, which scale matters in places like Lemberg, Wolf, Aviv, uh, where Romer's family lived. Um, his brother, in fact, Jan Edmund, was um, fighting on the front, fighting for Poland. He had been part of Kursudski's legions. Uh, Rudnitsky, who had dreamt himself of becoming a professor of geography, was forced out of Lviv and, and really, I think, never to return. Um, 
if a Ukrainian university had been allowed to be established there, or a Ukrainian language university, then of course Rutnitsky probably would have been the founder of the Department of Modern Geography and Cartography, and Ukrainian maps would have been allowed to um, be published there. But none of those things happen. And um, I think if we look from 1919 backwards from the Paris Peace Conference, where maps were really pictures worth a thousand words and diplomats carried them around in their brief in their briefcases, if, if they should have a moment to talk to Wilson or, or Lloyd George or um, um, that, that was really the year of maps in, in 1919. It was the year of geopolitics when the Kinder was, was writing about um, the control of, of, of Eurasia or the control of Eastern Europe. And um, there were many people, uh, first nation builders, state builders like Romer, like Rudnitsky, who, who were left out of that process with, with effects that would carry on through the League of Nations and, and through, um, I think, through through the course of um, another devastating world war. Thank you. Uh, it's been wonderful to tour your book a little bit today. Uh, before we go, I want to hear more. You mentioned uh, your most recent book, but uh, talk about that and, and any other projects that are uh, coming to the front burner, as it were. Sure. And, and thanks for thanks for the question and opportunity for shameless self-promotion. I have written three books now. Um, so the first book is Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, which we've just talked about, published by University of Chicago Press in 2012. Um, the second book, uh, which came out uh, in 2013, uh, is a book called Ukraine Under Western Eyes. Um, I'm very proud of this book and, and was very happy to be um, commissioned by Harvard to write it. It's a story of a Ukrainian neoclassical poet by the name of Bohdan Kravtsev, um, who was also, like Lelevel, um, a map collector. He um, was born in Ukraine in 1904 and came to the United States as part of the emigration after World War II and, and um, spent a good portion of the 1950s and 1960s in addition to writing poems and, and writing uh, as, as he was a journalist in the Ukrainian diaspora, he um, amassed a collection of uh, somewhere around 900 maps, which um, the family uh, donated to Harvard. It is now at Harvard in the Pusey Library, um, all of these maps of Ukraine, and it's the largest collection of, of maps of Ukraine exclusively outside of the country um, in the world. So I wrote this book about him and his life. It has a wonderful practice by um, Hihori Grabovich, um, George Grabovich at Harvard. Uh, that came out in 2013. The new book, um, which will be out with the University of Chicago Press in March of 2018, is called Map Men. And the, um, the heading for this is, is Map Men, Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe. Um, that was a five-year project that I worked on. It involves several geographers, uh, including Rudnitsky, the Ukrainian, um, Romer, a uh, Polish geographer who survived uh, World War II by hiding in a monastery. Uh, it involves Isaiah Bowman, um, who was the most important, one of the most important 
so-called New Worldist geographers writing about geopolitics, became the future um, the president of Johns Hopkins from 1935 to 1948. There's also a Transylvanian prime minister who committed suicide by the name of Count Paul Kelecki in 1941, and a number of others, including, um, of course, Germans, Nazi geographers, Nazi cartographers. Uh, and that's a very interesting way of, of um, looking at uh, the way geography became framed as a discipline in Polish-German relations or German-Ukrainian relations, even German-Russian relations over the course of the 20th century. So um, that book is coming out in March of 2018. Um, I'm very happy that it's almost finished and very happy, in fact, that, that uh, Chicago, which does a wonderful job of its, its series on cartography, was permitting me to put in my color images. There are many rare maps of Eastern Europe, of East Central Europe in the book. Um, last thing I would mention, I'm, I'm working on a project right now, um, actually two projects, one on gerrymandering, kind of global history, uh, using a number of East European case studies, and in particular ethnic gerrymandering cases uh, in the interwar period. Um, the other project I'm working on is a history of airlines and airports in the communist bloc. This is a larger project I started several years ago, which involves um, airlines that people have forgotten about, how they used maps to, um, for example, the East German airline Interflug, which nobody talks about. Nobody was allowed to fly on it. Um, but, you know, there are others, uh, of course, Polish law and, and, and Czechoslovak Airlines. I've been doing some research on that uh, in Prague, in Warsaw, in Frankfurt uh, for that project. So um, two more books in the pipeline uh, after Mapman hopefully uh, comes out with Chicago in March of 2018. Thank you very much for talking about this today. Uh, I wish you the best as we get into summer, Steve, and uh, we'll talk again. Bye-bye. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies. Today we spoke with Stephen Siegel about his book, Mapping Europe's Borderland, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, published by the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, inviting you to tune in again. Bye-bye.